0: I'm Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to On the Issues. My guest today is Alexander Cooley, director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. You can find more information about Alex on the page for this episode. We're going back to our favorite (laughs) president.
1: That's right. That's, uh, Who can keep up though, uh-huh. I mean, every hour there's something.
0: <laughs> yeah. What, 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 what do you make out of this, you know, for, as, as you see? I mean, you know, there was uh, some discussion yesterday about the tweets. Yeah. Uh, are these uh, position that he is taken? Or is this just another ordinary person sending a, a tweet here and there? How is it possible, and if it's coming from the President, anything he says or does, obviously, represent, should be representing his position, which means that's an official position that the United States is taking. That's, some people are making that argument, and others say, well, no, he's an ordinary person, specifically in connection with his demand, stop now this investigation, you know. Yeah. What, way, way, how do you look at it? I mean, you know, it's very like. Let's start with this. Um. Well,
1: I, well, I, you know, I think it's it's uncharted and novel territory because yeah. early on in the administration, Sean Spicer, then press secretary, said yes, you could exactly regard tweets as official presidential messages, and That's of right. course, a federal judge has ruled that um, from the official presidential Twitter account. President Trump does not have the right to block people. Right. right. So he ruled that he has to unblock the people that he blocked. Uh, however, his lawyers, when he tweets things like the Attorney General should fire or should end exactly, you know the, the witch hunt, they're saying, no, no, he's just expressing an opinion as a private citizen. <laughs> well, so they, they want, want, want it have, both ways. They, they want, want to have the, it exactly both ways. ways. Exactly, I think the, yeah. the problem on crimes like abuse obstruction is as far as I understand is there's a totality of evidence and clues and uh you know different communications that get at intent and state of mind and an evolution in your state of mind and so for that reason I think obviously the tweet's going to be of of great interest um to to Robert Mueller Um, but I do think there's been Playing the strategic playing both sides, and, and, and I think this is part of the brand-new world of Twitter and official communications. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we were talking earlier, but this, this is,
0: um, I think we're going to have to live with this phenomenon for a while. Hopefully, not more than two more years. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't expect for him to change his approach in mind. His policy. If there is such an animal, um, and, and uh, my concern is, my concern is that the the impact of his approach, his policies, to on the country beyond his uh, presidency, what sort of impact that's going to leave? I mean, his attack on the press is. Uh, yeah. All of the things that he's doing now, obviously, this is going to leave a, a terrible trail, I think, behind him. What,
1: well, what, let's let us take the focus off him for a second yeah, and think yeah. a little bit of how we got to this yeah. position in this place. Um, I was so struck, let's go back, actually, not even 2016, let's go back to 2012. Yeah. When we had the so-called foreign policy presidential debate between, back then, President Obama and uh, candidate Mitt Romney. Right. And what struck me about this debate was so-called debate was that it devolved to a a question of you don't think America is exceptional. Oh, yes, I do. Right. That was that was the level of discourse that was going on. And the whole question of how to deal with emerging powers, how do we manage declining American influence or power that these things were almost taboo to bring up in a kind of, you know, a rational thoughtful kind of way and it's a debate we haven't been able to have in public that's um, right for whatever that's reasons right. That's right. and so here comes someone who taps into this populist anger at the financial crisis at endless wars overseas and troop commitments whether you know Iraq or Afghanistan and you know let's set aside whether Trump supported the war or didn't or so forth he's tapped into that And all of a sudden, sort of Trump says, well, you know, why can't we just stop everything in Syria? Why can't we bring home our troops from Korea, right? Why can't we be friends with the North Koreans or the Russians? And he taps into this idea that these kinds of global obligations, alliances, institutions, norms, standards that we've taken as a given that America should uphold doesn't have to be that way. Now the question is, what is he offering? Right. Well,
0: exactly. He is right. not offering anything, exactly. basically. Exactly. You know, a substitute on return. But you know, look, But there is also there is an you know, inherent contradiction in his position, for example, in our involvement overseas. Yes, he did not want. He wants to withdraw, say, forces from Syria, which I think it would be horribly misguided if he were to do that. Just the thing of the repercussions. Iran still being the Israel concern and all of that. But he added three, four, five thousand 5,000 troops to Afghanistan. Here's another debacle. 17 years later, we're still fighting a war that is unwinnable, period. I mean, you know, I have had a discussion with one of the tri- head of the tribes there. And he said to me, Alon, these Taliban come from us, from our community. This is who they are. They're going to continue to fight another 1,000 years if they have to. These are native Afghani people. And they can hide, they can run, they can do a lot of things, but they will never they will never be defeated. And they have more patience than an American will ever have. You know, we are an instant society. We don't have that much patience. And they, will, they, are, they are not going to uh, lose this kind of battle no matter how long it takes. When will we awake? When will uh, this administration previous I mean, Obama didn't do much better either. What he's done, he's also added some. troops. He withdrew some, Then added some. Um, so uh, Trump is not exactly following a path that you can discern and say, this is his path, this is what he's pursuing. He keeps changing his mind, even about the very same issues. You know, ostensibly, he wants to please his best.
1: I, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a couple of other things we have to keep in mind when we think about Trump and what drives him, what guides him. One is his background in quote-unquote business and real estate dealings, right? He extrapolates from that directly. And the way he does that is he says, I'm unpredictable. And for me, that's a source of strength. That's a source of leverage that you take something that you assumed was the case and you threaten to blow it up. And in threatening to blow it up, then you extract concessions, right? That's his mode of doing quote-unquote deals. The problem, of course, with that is that you lose your trust, you lose your credibility. Exactly.
0: And in exactly. the end,
1: it's not a source of leverage. It becomes a source of weakness, especially if people don't trust don't your commitment. Don't That
0: engendered complete distrust. Right. You know, I mean, he prides himself on being... And I want to go back to the way you started. That is, we have to go back to Obama and Bush administration to, to, to what did get us to this point. Yep. But going on this particular point, thinking for a moment that... Um, and as I'm quoting one, master negotiator, he still follow the, the mantra, the, the philosophy of negotiation going back 25, 30 years, where the zero sum is what you are going to pursue, and my loss is your gain, and your uh, gain is my loss, uh, or your loss yep. is my gain. That has changed fundamentally. That is today, if you sit and negotiate, you're going to need, to aim for mutually beneficial outcome. Trump does not
1: understand that. No, he thinks He's it's, not, yeah, he it, thinks it's dog eats dog. Dog eats dog. And and also he just assumes that these interactions are one-off interactions, right? Yeah. So and like, yeah. you know, you don't pay a contractor, what are they going to do? Like, But the problem is in international relations, you have iterations, you have bureaucracies, you have contacted groups, you have this whole infrastructure that manages relations beyond just world leaders that are severely impacted by this. Um, so I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I would say, if, if, if you sort of extrapolate out what are some of the general principles of a Trumpian kind of foreign policy, I would say it's the following, although I don't think the president makes them this explicit. I think they would say, look, the world's a big place, there are strong powers, there are weak powers. You know, traditionally we've been burdened by having to keep up this global system maintenance. Wouldn't it be more efficient, wouldn't it be more beneficial if we just dealt with the strong? If we dealt with China, if we dealt with Russia, if we dealt with Saudi Arabia. Um, I think, you know, for people like Bannon, for instance, right, um, or Kushner, um, this is what they believe in that let's not bother with our commitments to the small countries and alliance, let's just deal with countries that matter. Right? And then let's not have barriers to deal with countries that matter. It's a very sort of simplistic thing, but it's It's this idea of this hierarchy of world powers kind of thing. The problem is that you don't ask the counterfactual, which is if China or Russia were in the US position where they led this global system of rules, norms, institutions, standards, alliances would they still be calling for a multipolar world? <laughs> the answer is no.
0: They, they, they Of course they, they won't. But the question is this. That is, if you withdraw, if the United States were to withdraw from its global position and okay. global leadership, well, you have China and you have potentially Russia who would be trying to recapture the lull, the gap, the, that United States is going to leave behind and they already been doing so and they've already been doing so. The question is to what extent we, that is the global community, and this is a little bit uh, difficult to talk about a global community per se, uh, does the United States its own interests serve better, serve best if we were to continue and maintain that outreach, that leadership on a global scale or is it better to withdraw what is the net game what is the net losses I, I feel that the United States interest is not limited to just dealing with the great powers and I think that is completely misguided approach mm. you've got to deal with also emerging powers you've got to deal with the middle, in the middle powers in the middle um, like the Saudis like the others and, but also also uh, and I think one point I have been thinking when I was specifically in Brussels lately, I mentioned to you briefly, you, the EU, for example, should assume greater responsibility, not in, you know, while maintaining the alliance with the United States, but assume greater responsibility, not just militarily speaking, but, but in other fields as well. So I think American leadership remains indispensable and what Trump is doing, I think he's disrupting this order, global order, that we have been pursuing as successfully so for the last seventy years. Yeah. And that does not augur well for the international community, but specifically in my view to the United
1: States. Outside. I I absolutely agree. I think the mistake that Trump and his backers on this issue make is this idea that if we just get rid of international commitments and institutions, then we are in a world of pure power and we can manage relations transactionally transactionally, um, one-on-one. Um, but that really underplays a lot of the systems dynamics and benefits that we get from maintaining the architecture. And so, you know, by treating each of these transactions in isolation, they're very much less than the sum of the parts. It's exactly. the sum of the parts that gives us leverage exactly. over our n- numerous interactions. You know, Now there are downsides to this sort of you know, global leadership systemic ma- management. One of them is this accusation of US hypocrisy, that the US says one thing and does one thing in a set of relations, say with the Saudis and other things, relations with NATO or Germany. That's absolutely true. But hypocrisy is also the lubricant of the system, if you want to look at it that way, that that these types of relationships can't all be of the same nature um, and of the same accord. But I do think the system that's in place um, provides real synergies across, if you want to think of it, sort of the the organizational uh, kind of field. Um, And reducing these dynamics to a 1v1 would actually really impoverish the u.s so i think that's a, that's a that's a very dangerous road to go down in in purely power political terms
0: that's what i think i think i, I absolutely agree i think um, um you cannot maintain obviously bilateral relations on an equal base basis with every single country but it's got to be some guiding principles exactly and the guiding principles of the united states being one that has been extremely useful Practical, albeit with many mistakes That's and right. faults unfold, here and there, but these guiding principles has, have, as I said, you know, been successful. But how you apply it to a different country is where hypocrisy comes, and for good reason. That is, uh, we, uh, we condemn we um, condemn uh, dictators, but we still deal with them when, in fact, we try right. promoting human rights and, and democracy elsewhere. Uh, We deal with Saudi Arabia, we deal with Erdogan of Turkey, uh, albeit they are uh, ruthless in so many different ways, but nevertheless, we are friends with them, so to speak. But the the question is, that is where I think perfection, or quote-unquote, I forgot, perfection is such an animal, especially not in politics and foreign policy.
1: You you know, there's another dimension to this, too, and that is, you know, there is this meme um, that Trump... Buys into and his supporters, too, sort of admiring the decisiveness of people like Putin and so forth, and sort of contrasting it with, you know, the um, slow decision making process of someone like Obama. But the fact of the matter is, Putin can be decisive, yes, A, because um, he's relatively unconstrained um, domestically in some areas, not all, but also because Russia does not have the same network of commitments and alliances and relations to manage that the U.S. has. So Russia can snap its fingers and intervene on behalf of Syria and Assad as a client state, whereas the U.S. has to pay attention to Relations with Turkey, relations with Israel, its Iranian policy, impact on the Middle East, impact on the Gulf states, its relationship with France, with NATO. Just about everywhere. Yeah, and that's the case everywhere. Everywhere. These relationships have to be managed, especially when you're talking about military intervention or questions of the highest order. So Putin is, quote unquote, decisive because there isn't the set of obligations exactly. that he has in the same and He can way. afford to be decisive. Right. And, because, and so we're oh. we're, we're confusing yeah. being yeah. decisive and being strong with positions of actual geopolitical weakness, right? Yeah. That sort of enable that kind of that kind Absol- of tactical.
0: Uh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, I disagree with those who criticize Obama for taking going through extensive deliberation before making a certain decision. But if you really want to lead, you cannot be arbitrary. You cannot be decisive for the sake of decisiveness. Uh, Sometimes too slow, it's not necessarily serve the, the, the ultimate purpose. Take the EU, for example. One of the problems they have there, which is so glaring, is the, the decision-making process. Yeah. the decision-making process so slow that it is, the EU is losing much of its effectiveness as a result of that and not to speak of the fact you need the consensus of just about every country, regardless of big or small, in order to make any significant decision about anything whatsoever. So so there is a sort of uh, also a middle road, you know, decisiveness when it is necessary, when you may need to make a decision, whereas deliberation, careful deliberation, uh, consulting, uh, allies, uh, advisors, it is absolutely critical if you really want to lead successfully.
1: You make a very good point about the Obama um, interagency process here we have just two striking contrasts in styles the Obama interagency process was inclusive always included multiple inputs and you know I think there is some validity to criticism that sometimes they would just be too nuanced right they would make distinctions between you know, well yes, we can give them weapons, but we can't conduct exercises sort of over here, right? That's the way we're gonna send these multiple signals that we're gonna do. So we'd make these these you know, these nuances. Trump, of course, is on the other side of the spectrum, that there there might be an interagency process, you know, of deputies, but it doesn't matter. Because Does ag- not even, you know, <laughs> Trump's own national intelligence director knows exactly what happened in the meeting exactly. with Putin in Helsinki exactly. kind of thing. So he's on the other end of the spectrum. So I agree with you. There, there perhaps is some room, you know, in between for you know, leadership and inputs, but at the moment we have leadership without inputs. With no inputs whatsoever. No inputs whatsoever. whatsoever. That is,
0: that's the scary thing, I think, about uh, what's happening now. Um, But, you know, talking, going back to your field, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, of course, about what does Putin has over Trump now. Whether there's a video where (laughs) Trump is compromised in a hotel room, or whether it's something else, what what it is you think that? Uh, obviously, I mean, based on all of the, everything we see, uh, Trump is not reaching out or not praising and talking about Putin in such a, you know, uh, in such a positive terms, uh, only because he may or may not have something on him, but. It must be something else do you do you do you look at it from a from a geo strategic perspective does he have anything
1: it's it's so hard to say for sure it's all speculation right uh, my sense is you know and again I you know I, I have no inside knowledge so uh, you know I, I can't know but but my sense is Trump is not the kind of person who would be readily shamed. By things like sexual exploits and things like that. Like maybe they're embarrassing to him, maybe he wants them to go away. But he, he you know, to, to, to talk about powerful leverage in that way, you know, I'm not sure that's the source of leverage. Uh, what I think is more likely is we get back to the old adage, follow the money. And is there something, a set of business practices in Trump's past? Especially, let's not forget this world of international luxury real estate Mm -hmm. it's very opaque Mm -hmm. it's conducted mostly through shell companies uh, unknown owners it's a way of laundering money um, especially in a transnational type of setting because the regulations on international real estate transactions are minimal
0: this is is a a, a really an
1: unregulated opaque field just to start And Trump took advantage of that in this branding of his properties all around the world to attract investments, many of them coming from Eurasia. So to me, you know, I think the more likely explanation if there is a source of compromise or leverage is that there is a long history of business ties that Trump has of him, um, you know, receiving money uh, uh, from these various types of sources that may or may not have had shady origins uh, and may not may or may not have been akin to money laundering, right? And I, And I think that's that to me, is a more likely uh, source of leverage. And of course, you know, backing that up for me is that for the longest time, Trump, Uh, through his lawyers uh, was saying, well, you know, if Mueller goes after my finances in the Trump organizations, to me, that's the red line. That's the red line. Right? But but again, it's it's all speculation. But I think this comes back to the whole question of, you know, did the U.S. media and opposition candidates properly vet this guy's business background, his past, right? If being a businessman right, doing deals was part of um, the appeal, the strength of this candidate, then that should have been scrutinized, right? And these, you know, business dealings and associations and the whole history of the Trump organization should have been put on a microscope much more than it has been. Oh, absolutely.
0: But this is not even related uh, independently from Russia. Look about his business practices right here in the United States. I mean, this is a guy who, everybody knows, declared four-time bankruptcy. This is a guy who does not pay his bills, uh, leaving thousands of people hanging without pay when he closed, for example, his Tashma casino and many other places. So this is in and of itself should have sent many red lights that uh, this guy is not ethical, is not to be trusted. Why, and I agree with you 100% that if he doesn't have this... Sexual leverage, or but he definitely has that kind of leverage. That is some shady deals, and and I think this is rather plausible. Mm-hmm. And this may well be the reason why he's, he's causing up to
1: to, yeah. to 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 Putin. I I think yeah. the other thing uh, is, you know, my sense and again, I have no inside knowledge. my my sense is to, he enjoys, the banter and the dialogue with with people that he perceives as you know. You know, his, his equal in stature. Yeah. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if he does ask Putin for advice, right? Uh, in terms of geopolitics, even domestic politics, right? Um, that, you know, hey, how do you think I should handle this? Right. Yeah. How um, did uh, they
0: manage to control your population? Show me how. Who I can do it. Who do, knows? Do it in the United
1: States. Right. But but <laughs> you know.
0: But but right. But this example, right, of the line coming in.
1: Oh, the Montenegrins. They're very aggressive people. That's something that was not in Trump's, you know, vocabulary. I think until he had that meeting. That seems to me clear a line that was fed to him as a concern in that Yeah, meeting.
0: yeah, I agree. Now, there's another aspect, I think, to him, and that is, for example, his meeting with Kim Jong-un. I, at the time, I was thinking about, okay, there are many, many reasons, but think about it. Trump wants to demonstrate to the whole world that he can do certain things that nobody else can, almost regardless of the outcome. The, the fact that he met with some lunatic <laughs> in and of itself is a total complete departure from anything traditional. The United States has ever done. And if, I mean, administration before. That's another element. That is, yeah. he wants to demonstrate. Look what I can do. No other president can have done That's it. Right. But the result? Well, you never know. Yeah. Something may come out of it. Right. right. The right. fact that nothing probably will come out of it. That is beside beside the point. And I think I have similar relationship with 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 with, with um, Putin. You know. There is nothing to lose. Yeah, you see, no. I can I can manage this relationship differently than it's I been think before. that's right.
1: That for him, you know, it's a badge of honor, yeah. right, to be able to do something his yeah. predecessor, you know, especially when he's told by his advice, no, you can't do this. And it's yeah. like, well, you know, just watch me. That he enjoys the status and the pageantry of summits. Yeah, he does not like multilateral fora, where he has to be you know, one of several juridical equals, right? You know, the G7 meeting or the NATO meeting, um, you know, that really irks him. You can tell, like, that he has to sort of put on this face and have joint communiques and agreements. He likes the pageantry and the status of two people under the global kind of spotlight.
0: And especially when you have such a group who just about every single one of them is much more savvy. Politically, diplomatically and otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't want to be in a, in, a, in a setting where other people are so much more, have so much more experience in, in, in diplomacy and in politics. Um, uh, along these lines, now uh, he suggested to meet with Rouhani of Iran. So. <laughs> and this is a guy he That'll knows. be the trifactor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Right.
1: What do you think of that? I, mean, <laughs> I think it's it, I think it's what you said. I think you know all the, the the question of you know you can't do this, and you know relations are so you know hostile, and they're going and oh I'm going to be unpredictable now. Why not meet without preconditions? Like let's yeah. do it. Um, so yeah, no, I think it it's it, it's part of this mode of operating where you try and you know disrupt common understandings you know up is down you know you sort of show yourself to be unpredictable Uh, and then this emphasis on personal chemistry right so for Trump it's not about countries and their national interests it's about do we get along do we like each other right do we you know, do we have a good relationship, a good chemistry? like On a
0: personal basis. On a personal basis. On a personal basis. Personal yeah. basis. Yeah. See, I don't think he gives a damn about the political system. Exactly. Whatsoever. That's you know. right. Am I getting along well with Netanyahu? That's fine. Yep. yep. Uh, I, he, I mean, his, his uh, allegiance is not to Netanyahu. is to what he perceives it to be. You know? you know what I'm saying? That is, he sees Netanyahu as someone he can deal with. Because it's a Netanyahu versus Trump, not, Neta- not Trump versus Israel itself. Right. That's the that's difference, and that's, and that's where, where he comes from. Which is, uh, but I want to go back to where you, where you wanted to go back initially. That is, to what extent, from your perspective, the Obama's foreign policy, or the residue of that policy, impacted on if there is such an animal of uh, Trump policy, Trump foreign policy? Yeah. Do you see the the residue of that impacting on on Trump in any way?
1: Well, I I think there's a couple of of, of impacts. One is Trump wanting to reverse Obama's signature achievements, right? Oh, yes. So Uh, I think this is... In every respect. In every respect, both domestically and internationally. So if Obama did it, then he's going to undo it. Right. Despite the I, I logic agree.
0: Or, That's become his foreign his policy.
1: Yeah, yeah. As a domestic as yeah.
0: well as foreign policy, if yeah. done, I agree hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Yeah,
1: that. And then I think he he also, you know, doesn't like this idea of the U.S. Um, you know, uh, getting into these sort of consensus based. Um, and agreements and organizations and so forth. And, and so, you know, again, this is, um, uh, you know, the, the search for, you know, very brutal transactional kinds of policies. And then I think, you know, the other area, which is the distinct break that we haven't had is this um, projection of um, the kind of alt-right Transnational illiberal agenda overseas, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, to have a U.S. president who is championing Brexit, who is championing the right, the rise of far-right parties, Marine Le Pen, for instance, oh, yeah. um, um, Orbán, who is sending ambassadors to places like Germany and the Netherlands, um, you know, who take these very tough anti-immigration stances and are very critical of the governments which are hosting them. That's so nice, this nice. is a sea change, right? This projection of this kind of illiberal rightist politics and infusing it into normal, what should be normal foreign policy processes and institutions, I think as, um, as, as you must have observed too in your uh, travels and work in Europe, must have really uh, shaken up. I think a lot of our traditional partners. Oh boy,
0: I mean, they are shaken in every which way you can imagine. And I cannot uh, begin to tell you how they reacted during that week, especially you when know, NATO was yeah. taking place. And how they, everywhere he went in the parliament, he said, that, I-, I can't believe what I'm hearing, I yeah. cannot believe what I'm seeing. And, 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 and the impact of that, I think, is lasting. Uh, I mean, for the same very reason, of course, he doesn't like... Uh, NATO for him is obsolete or, yeah. or the EU is, is defunct that's right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. he much uh,
1: yeah just encouraging Macron to to leave and then he'll do a better deal but there's some interesting perspective too let's let's not forget that Obama was soundly criticized in many quarters as not being enough of a transatlanticist right yes, that, yes. that that of not supporting the transatlantic alliance publicly of not showing an interest in it. Remember, in Obama, it was all about the pivot to the Pacific, right? Um, and the TPP. I, and don't
0: you think that's been somewhat uh, overly exaggerated? It was. It I, was I, I, exaggerated. I say, yeah. And
1: I, I think what the Obama team didn't sufficiently appreciate was that when you are a global Power. When you say that you're going to go somewhere and emphasize something like our Pacific relations, then that makes folks who are not in the designated area nervous, and that's why you say, for example, with the Baltic states. The Baltic states were very nervous about Obama, and some of them I actually think use quite his, his yeah they feel hysterical kinds of levels. Yeah, yeah. abandoned. Exactly. They feel exactly abandoned. Yeah. This yes, discourse exactly. of abandonment yes, yeah. and. And not believing principles oh, yeah. and not standing yeah. up and so forth. Now, of course, now they're facing actual abandonment, right? Yeah. Or what yeah. what that yeah. might look like in yeah. terms of Article 5 commitments and NATO. Right. And then right. so, so I think there's an interesting re-narration of Obama's foreign policy, too. I think in some circles, there was a criticism that he wasn't tough enough. He wasn't uh, hard enough. Uh, and that's I think being rethought in, in yeah. the light of time yeah
0: I mean as far as the Balkan goes you know, yeah. they feel that um, Trump in the sense saying to Putin you know you, you do what you want until Erdogan, you do what you want and the Balkans <laughs> are now in the middle and that's probably one of the reasons there's a push for membership in the EU and trying to get out of that in right. uh, you know, a predicament that they find themselves in. But going back to the pivot to the to the east you know, I mean, the reason I have, uh, I I don't think it was as overly exaggerated. We have not, even during the Obama administration, we really have not reduced any uh, of our level of troops anywhere in the region. In fact, we augmented that in in the Middle East. Sixth Fleet, seventh Fleet, uh, Fifth Fleet. Not to speak of, um, you know... um, We reduce no troops from Europe, certainly not from Korea, not
1: from Japan. Stationing in Australia? Stationing in Australia. And
0: uh, I count in nearly 100 different countries where we have some form of military presence. Some form of military presence. This is amazing. I want to go back to the point under these conditions, circumstances, can we in fact afford to say, well, Trump now wants to this, the, the the disconnect from all of these ties and alliances and commitments and keep America the way it, it is or it's kind of supposed yeah. to be. That's not going to happen. Yeah.
1: I think Trump, and this, okay, this was a story a few weeks ago when he learned the extent of the U.S. presence in Germany. He was absolutely shocked right? yeah. that we were keeping all those troops in Germany. And so, So again, I think... Yeah. The, the, the understanding of the deployments overseas, the very different histories involved in each one, the kinds of legacies, their political significance, you know, all of these things are, of course, things that, you know, he's not, he's not particularly interested in. Now, I think, you know, one can have valid debates about U.S. troop levels and engagement in each parts of this world and whether, you know, they really are, um, you know, worth the candle um, and, 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 you know, what a post, post-Cold War foreign policy should look like. But I think part of the point is, if this is a debate that we should have, we should do so openly in public. That we should do this as part of our regular, you know, presidential campaign or in Congress, that this shouldn't be something that happens in a stealth hidden fashion. Right, That, you know, questions about managing U.S. decline, if you want to use that vocabulary, and I'm okay with that, um, I think are, are really big, important questions. How is, you know, what should the U.S. presence in the 21st century look like? But let's have this be... Um, a,
0: a, a discussion, have a, exactly. a public exactly. discussion, That's know, right. That's open-ended right. in, in the yep. Senate, in the House. Yep. Where are we going? Where, where do we want to see ourselves Absolutely. in 2050? Absolutely. And there is no such roadmap. No one has created Absolutely. one, no one is attempting to draw one. And all the principles should
1: uh, be involved, and again, in a very public way. And so uh, what we have now is just this very fragmented disconnect. And with yes. the State Department being taken out, almost entirely. And that's not healthy either, this sort of fragmentation of policy. No, there's no question.
0: I mean, was he also added, of course, to the polarization, and such to to a magnitude as I haven't seen, even in the worst situation in the past, even during the the Nixon administration, other administrations, have you ever, do you ever recall the, the, the kind of, it's reduced to personal animosity, not just Differences in policy between the Republican and the Democrat. Now it is taking also on a personal level between various, you know, and 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 uh, when you do have a president who who never consults the opposition, the Democratic leadership on just about anything whatsoever, that is a horrible sign of where we're going.
1: Yeah, and I think it's 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 only logical to assume that when everything is contested and polarized, you know. Um, foreign policy is going to be as well. And we, you know, we're, we're, we're still living in this ideal that somehow there's always been a foreign policy consensus. Well, you know, we, that consensus overlapped and emerged in large part because of the Cold War, right? And because of our national security threats. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of euphoric institution building that went on in the 1990s. But of course... This degree of toxic polarization, as you point out, is going to affect every part yeah. of yeah. our okay. public life. And so yeah. there should be no surprise that it's happening in international politics, too.
0: Yeah, are you. Are we, when we talked earlier on the, on the phone, we mentioned Helsinki. Uh, your take?
1: So uh, it's hard to know exactly what happened <laughs> yes. in that room. Uh, I think, you know, there's... There's some tactical victories and there's sort of some strategic questions, right? So tactically, I think, you know, Trump did himself no favors in siding with President Putin on the question of Russian interference, you know, his inability to confront him. I actually thought the Mueller indictment of the hackers that was timed gave him the platform to do that, so. That I, opportunity. I, yeah. I, I yeah. read that and who knows yeah. what the timing was driven, by, but I had driven like, here are the tools yeah. For you use to it. make, yeah, use them kind of thing. And yeah. he didn't take that. And so I thought that was quite stunning. The meeting, the private meeting for two hours, I also found stunning but not surprising, right? Because he had telegraphed that he wanted to do that. So and the to the was...
0: extent, even to this day, yeah. when, when Pompeo testified in front of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, and I'm sure you, you've seen this and read much about it, he... From what, from what I've seen and heard, I I can swear. <laughs> swearing is not the right word for it. I don't think Trump shared with him much of what was discussed.
1: No, and that's because why Pompeo. He knew nothing. Yeah, he knew and, nothing about. And him. exactly in those hearings, that's why Pompeo was emphasizing: well, the policy is unchanged. The yes, policy yes, is yes, strong, yes, as yes, opposed yes, to the, the yes. personal thing. But I do think that the Russians also misread the situation, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because a large part of their agenda, as we know reported in Russian sources, because we're not getting the reads, yeah, yeah. concerned grand bargains and steps to be taken in places like Syria, yeah. places like Ukraine, right? Um, but that's also extremely naive. This idea that we can just set up working groups now and deal with issues like cyber or policy or academic kinds of expert exchanges yes in ordinary circumstances all of these things would be good things and i'm you know i'm in favor of them but it fundamentally misreads the domestic political constraints to assume that all of this can happen and in the midst of this ongoing investigation and i think the danger for the russians is that they're increasingly being conflated with trump yeah right yeah and the yeah, party yeah. of trump And you are on the verge now of losing for a generation um, partisan liberal Democrats who are all going to become Russia hawks, right? When traditionally this was a faction that was favored engagement and dialogue and discussion. So what I fear is that things are bad and they're fragmented and they might even become worse. And I think what the Russians don't, Uh, perhaps fully appreciate, is that there will be calls for backlash. I think it's going to happen. I think that's, we're in very dangerous territory.
0: When you put all your stocks on one individual, such as Trump, what is the likelihood that they can eventually reap the kind of benefit they really want out of it? Given the fact that we are not Russia, and a president cannot be elected more than twice, and somebody else is going to come to the fore, and uh, who, he, she, or he or she going to take a completely different look at where we are? Yeah. So, so I think that is. I agree with you, That's a fundamental mistake. That putting all their stocks on what Trump can do for them, uh, without thinking if we want to have any kind of relationship with the United States, is going to be useful, practical, strategically important to them. They've got to put also pay attention to what's yeah. going on. And
1: yeah. it's always this wanting to yeah. get maximum buck for things. So yeah. like big issues all yeah. the time, yeah. grand bargains. Yeah. And it just you know, the policymaking process doesn't work that way. And yeah. so the you know, the bigger the goals, the bigger the disappointments. And that's always been the case in terms yeah. of the resetting yeah. of US sort of Russian relations, because there's such structural problems and disagreements between the sides but even more so now. And I think this is exactly the time, if I were advising the Russians, that they'd want to keep a low profile, right? Not make a public display of all these agreements and all these things that we agreed to and so forth, because this is absolutely toxic in a domestic political setting. And so I I, I think they're starting to understand a little bit of that in terms of the fallout from Helsinki. Um, um, But again, the the appreciation of the domestic political constraints, you know, I don't think they they quite understand how difficult it is um, for any of these things to be implemented in a in a political time like this. Yes, that's I think
0: you're right, and they don't understand that uh, certain you know that's a political culture that is embedded in our system, that the uh, Trump can temper with it, can play with it here and there, can compromise here and there, but fundamentally, he is not going to be able to change that. And they will have to live with that.
1: They'll have to live with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, then the other part of this is, um, you know, I think what you see with the Mueller indictments, and now we see the the trial of Paul Manafort, not to get into too much detail, but you were also shining a light in terms of some of these other transnational networks and activities in Mm -hmm. the world of, you know, Eurasian oligarchs, of political consultants, uh, Viktor Yanukovych um, and all his networks um, of law firms and lobbying here in the U.S. In other words, there's a lot of infrastructure that has supported this type of political advising that's now going to be put under the microscope and real scrutiny um, that I think is going to cause a lot of discomfort too. So um, we're, we're, we're going to have a lot of civic lessons, I think, out of this investigation. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. and, and, and a lot yeah. of issues, I think, that we didn't think of as necessarily political or, or problematic or part of the world order, I think uh, we're going to have to rethink.
0: So, what's your ad- advice
1: to Trump?
0: <laughs> in in, in a <laughs> nutshell.
1: Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I, would, I, I mean, my advice to Trump would be if you truly value the U.S. power politics, Right, that you'll start seeing a lot of these things not as impediments to power, but as assets of power, oh, right? yeah. as constituting American power. And if you start thinking in those terms, um, then that's the basis for a much more effective raw power politics. But I think the sort of... You know the straight analogizing from real estate deals in the '80s and '90s to international <laughs> affairs isn't serving. But him does well. he
0: really? He think does he really understand the magnitude of, a, of the power of the United States? I'm and not how, sure he does. I'm not that's sure. He that's does. Not sure my, my does. thinking. The like, magnitude of the power did, and the capabilities. If he did, I and mean, probably he would have been. Yeah. Taking some different yeah. kind of steps.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, what's at stake now, I'm speaking just in terms of domestically, what's at stake with the midterm elections? Yeah. You know, impeachment may be, I mean, we, you know, we just don't know yet what, you know, what the special counsel is going to recommend and how the political process will play out. But I think what's really at stake is subpoena power in the committees, yeah. it's uh-huh. the ability to hold hearings uh-huh. on any one of these issues. What happened in Helsinki, right? What are the nature of sort of, you know, Trump's business dealings, right? Um, In countries X, Y, and Z. The minute you have subpoena power and committee power, all of these issues are going to be put under a spotlight. And so, I, you know, I think he probably understands it, but again, I don't think he appreciates how this can just bring a presidency to a complete halt. I mean, you think the last two years of Reagan, Iran-Contra, non-stop hearings and it'll be that i think impeded the yeah, 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 yeah
0: room for to, to maneuver exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah well thank you so much i think we are in good time yeah my pleasure thanks for having me no it's my pleasure thank you i think it, i hope you, you i enjoyed it I yeah that was fun <laughs> absolutely absolutely thank you for listening to this episode on the issues You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.